Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm your host for today's episode, in which I'm interviewing Elliot Jurist about his book, Minding Emotions, Cultivating Mentalization and Psychotherapy, published by the Guilford Press in 2018. This interview may also end up on New Books and Psychology channel. Um, And in today's interview, we'll be looking at at this relationship between psychoanalysis and psychology, especially clinical psychology. Elliot Jurist is a professor of psychology and philosophy at the Graduate Center, the City University of New York, where he served as director of the clinical psychology doctoral program for many years. Dr. Jurist is the co-author with Peter Fonagy and others of a book called Affect Regulation, Mentalization, and the development of the self, which many of our listeners may may know about that book. And he's also the editor of Psychoanalytic Psychology, the journal of Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. So welcome to the program, Dr. Jurist. Thank you very much. And so a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with that book um, that you wrote with Peter Fonagy, um, Affect Regulation, Mentalization, and Development of the Self. It's a book I see so much cited in the literature, and it's on my list, on my, my Amazon wish list of, you know, eventually books I got to get, got to buy and read because it's, I guess, a uh-huh. classic. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious about how this book, Minding Emotions, uh, let's see, where's the title? Cultivating Mentalization and Psychotherapy. How is this book that we're talking about today how does it follow on affect regulation or how's it what does it add to that that field yes well i think minding emotions grows directly from the affect regulation book um, i had written the chapters on the history of affect and on mentalized affectivity and the new book expounds um, and in some places i think corrects ideas from the earlier book i'm interested especially in uh, responding to people who uh, imagine that mentalization is a kind of merely uh, uh, cognitive uh, concept. Uh, And that's why I pay a lot of attention to emotions. Um, So you can think of the new book as mentalization theory, you know, 15 years down the road. Um, I mentioned that it corrects ideas from uh, the earlier book. Um, Probably the biggest point in that connection is that Uh, We had suggested in the 2002 book that mentalization grows out of secure attachment, Uh, but research has shown that uh, infants have earlier mentalizing skills, actually as young as seven months uh, old. Uh, So that point needs to be uh, qualified. Um, And one other point is that we had suggested that uh, borderline uh, personality uh, disorder Uh, meant that someone was unable to mentalize. And that's also, I think, a little bit uh, simplistic uh, because uh, it's uh, more 
accurate to suggest that they lose the capacity to mentalize under certain conditions rather than just uh, lack the capacity. Um, so kind of a bottom line is that the relationship between attachment and mentalization is a lot more complicated than we had understood at the time. Okay. Um, that's fascinating. Um, and we're in this whole realm of attachment and mentalization and borderline personality disorder. And mm-hmm. at some point, we're going to get to some questions about where psychoanalysis fits into this. But let's let's begin sort of step by step. And maybe even from the very first, I think it was first sentences of the, of the book where, where you say, we often do not know what we feel. And that's so true. Although when I first read it, I thought, what? What do you mean we don't know what we feel? Um, it, it really is. It's a simple idea, but taken for granted. And so you you developed this idea by elaborating on a concept you call aporetic, am I pronouncing it right? Aporetic emotions. Can you uh-huh. tell us what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I think it is often supposed uh, wrongly uh, that we always know what we feel or we we know what we feel in some automatic way. Um, that happens to be uh, one of the assumptions of the basic emotions paradigm in psychology. So I was looking to try to capture something that really is an everyday experience of people uh, in therapy and not in people not who not necessarily in therapy of uh, knowing that they feel something but not being able to um, understand it um, and having to put effort into that process. So the idea of operatic emotions, uh, which is derived from uh, the term that refers to Socrates' uh, dialogues in which, in some ways, he's trying to become clearer about the questions rather than to be able to provide answers, that it is possible to uh, make progress in understanding uh, your emotions, um, but sometimes that um, is difficult and uh, it takes effort. So that's what I was hoping to uh, capture. Yeah, I I have a good example of that just because I met with a client recently who's um, kind of obsessed with buying a new luxury car, and I recently spent an entire. But he's he's. He, He's um, distressingly obsessed. It's like yeah. taking over his life. And so we spent a lot of time unpacking all the different kind of feelings that were underneath uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. underneath that. So um, right. I think as, you know, and I'm a, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, but I can see how a lot of the work I do sometimes is is beginning with this basic level of helping people begin to understand and think about their feelings. So say more now about um, once we help a patient begin to identify uh, what they're feeling, you, you talk about a number of different kind of steps, identifying, modulating, expressing mm-hmm. emotions. Can you say more about, and you go into sure. each. You have well, chapters. I think I had an intuition that um, identifying, modulating, and expressing emotions were distinct uh, and uh, to some degree uh, separate aspects of experiencing emotions. Um, And also that this could help uh, give us some insight into uh, where patients were um, assessing patients' skills, um, uh, strengths, and weaknesses. Um, And uh, it turns out that my uh, research team 
actually has demonstrated the robustness of uh, these distinctions. Uh, so the intuition uh, that these are three different components of experiencing emotions uh, turns out to be strengthened. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we're talking to somebody from a with a psychoanalytic background who's talking about assessments. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Uh, which probably doesn't, you don't hear that much on this channel. Um, oh, really? But so, okay. so mm-hmm. well, but yeah. there's, a, there's a long history of uh, psychoanalytic involvement in uh, assessment. I mean, it's true that like the Rorschach is very controversial, um, but uh, in the clinical psychology doctoral program that I teach in, uh, we're very committed to uh, training students to do assessment in a um, psychodynamically sensitive way. And I think later in the interview, I, I want to come back to that um, mm-hmm. relationship between clinical do- psychology, doctoral programs, and psychoanalysis. But so, have sure. you created some assessments to to measure aspects of emotional? I don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. What is? Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you say about that? Yes. Um, so this the measure is called the mentalized affectivity scale, um, and uh, it's still in a fairly early stage of being developed. Uh, we're just beginning to use it on a clinical population, um, but uh, one of the most intriguing uh, findings so far, uh, which is actually kind of complicated to unpack, is that uh, people who have disorders uh, are actually better at identifying emotions uh, than um, control uh, cases, um, but they're worse at modulating their emotions. So that provides some support for the centrality of working with modulating emotions uh, in therapy. Okay, so so let's stay with this modulating emotions because mm-hmm. that sounds similar to what I often hear probably is called um, at, um, emotional regulation, helping patients yes. regulate. Is there a difference between modulating and regulating emotions? I think so. I mean, that's one of the uh, central points that I try to make, that the language of regulation implies a kind of top-down uh, control of cognition exercised over the emotion. And mm-hmm. modulation, which is a term that, uh, you know, in music uh, has to do with sort of the blending of different things or blending of sounds. So uh, mm-hmm. I prefer the idea of some kind of integration of affect and uh, cognition, not that the cognition subdues uh, mm-hmm. the uh, emotion. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. And and I like this. Um, so this links to another question I have about this top-down idea. Yeah. I, I really like how I my doctoral dissertation used a critical psychology approach, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't worked a whole lot with since then. But I did learn about how so many of our psychological ideas and psychoanalytic ideas are really colored by ideological biases that mm-hmm. have to do with power relations. And you have a, you, you keep that in mind throughout this book and, and even have a little critique of this idea of emotion regulation, regulating emotions as being, yeah. Kind of, say more mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it is important to recognize and theorize about how culture impacts on emotions um, and that we need to be a little more cautious about 
terms like emotion regulation or emotional intelligence is another uh, big concept these days because uh, I do fear that the way they're often used, um, intentionally or not, uh, is to reward people who are already privileged um, and also a way to misconstrue people uh, who are not. Um, let me mm-hmm. um, try to give you an example. Um, James Baldwin uh, famously talked about the importance of sustaining rage as a response to white racism. Now, do you understand that as a failure of emotion regulation? Or can you be open to the idea that's an appropriate kind of regulation of the uh, motion of anger upward, given the reality and the continuing reality of racism uh, in our uh, society. Uh, The other point that I make about these terms is that I do think they reflect a kind of bias of neoliberalism in which there's this heightened uh, value placed around the idea of containing or restricting your body to not interfere with others. Wait, so say a little more about that, that one caught me off guard. So, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, your question was about, um, how bias can enter, uh, our field, um, how it can influence the direction of, uh, research. And it's always interesting, you know, to look at, uh, at what point in time certain ideas gain prevalence. And what I'm suggesting is the idea of emotion regulation and emotional intelligence corresponds to a period of time in which, you know, I think there's a lot of support for the idea of people being sort of responsible for themselves, um, as opposed to what I could maybe characterize in terms of like a more communitarian uh, kind of uh, thinking. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I see how, um, yeah, if, if our role as clinicians is just to help our, or try to like push our clients to be more adaptable to society and, and get along, um, that's sort of, we're just sustaining a status quo, um, Mm-hmm. when maybe we need to be helping our clients, some of our clients become less emotionally regulated and get out there yeah, into the streets. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I actually say that I don't think we should just presume that it's always better to regulate your emotions, right? I mean, there have to be some spheres in which emotional outpouring seems like it's appropriate. Um, the other uh, point that I think is contained in what uh, I'm saying about emotion regulation is that it's it's more relational than just this idea of an individual taking care of him or herself. Okay, so I'm beginning to see, or maybe our listeners are too, how we're talking a lot about emotions, and this is, I guess, a subset of the broader topic of mentalization. So as mm-hmm. part of part of mentalization like you said in the beginning, it's not just a cognitive process. It it, de- right. it, it, it it includes how we handle our emotional life as a part of mentalizing. Is That's right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I think you could understand, you know, mentalizing as distinct from reasoning because it builds in an emotional component in the process. Uh-huh. Okay. 
and you know, maybe I can just say a word or two about just the history of the term mentalization, uh, because one of my chapters uh, deals with that fairly extensively. But um, the word uh, was used by French uh, psychoanalysts uh, who were interested in psychosomatics, and their understanding of a me- of mentalization really is about reading uh, bodily states. Um, so it's very far away from the other uh, connotation of mentalization that comes from theory of mind, in which it's a little more abstract and it's about reading other people's mental states. Um, and I think the originality of mentalization theory within psychoanalysis is to find a way to uh, demonstrate uh, that mentalization has to do with reading one's own states and reading the state mental states of uh, others, and that it in it entails some integration of cognition and affect. Okay, all right. I see how now we're beginning to move into the, the area of psychoanalysis. Not only because you mentioned the French somaticians, yeah, psychosomaticians. So. Because we're beginning to get into the area of things that aren't known cognitively, things that may be experienced in the body, which is what the mm-hmm. French were trying to get at, and how we begin to represent or bring that into language. Yes. But, um, mm-hmm. So, but I'll, I mean, I probably a lot of people are going to say, well, mentalization is really mostly about dealing with consciousness and cognition mm-hmm. how how can you make a case that mentalization yeah. belongs in psychoanalysis or sure um well i think there are different ways to address that because first of all um there's no reason to assume that we are always aware of our mentalizing um and uh there's often a distinction that's made between a kind of low level automatic kind of mentalizing that's taking place all the time, right? And then uh, kind of uh, uh, high or um, kind of more subject to uh, voluntary control in which we sort of make the choice to specifically mentalize about something, right? So let's say in the face of an ambiguous social situation, someone does something and you try to explain to yourself what's going on with that, right? But that's different from that you're always taking in information that uh, you might not need to be aware of. Now, it is true that um, that kind of idea of uh, the unconscious as something which is, you know, out of mind unless it, it needs to be brought to attention uh, is a little different from the sort of deeper uh, psychoanalytic understanding of mm-hmm. uh, the unconscious. Um, and here what I would say, um, and I'm not sure that others in the mentalization uh, world would agree, uh, but I think that we often begin to mentalize sort of retrospectively. Right. So some people think of mentalization as, you know, you're you're confused or uh, you want to figure something out. And so it's prospective. It helps you decide what you believe or what you are going to do. Um, But I think that sort of distorts the fact that 
you know, and again, this maybe comes back to operatic uh, emotions that, um, you know, are the motivation uh, for our actions is often not apparent to us. And that's where I think I remain committed to uh, a more psychoanalytic understanding of uh, the unconscious. So to put it in a way that might even sound a little perverse, you know, I think that we often begin to mentalize when we see that we should have mentalized, but we weren't able to do that. Hmm. I'm thinking about, as clinicians, when we're sitting with a patient who's speaking to us, a lot of what we're doing is would be mentalizing, and including, I guess, if we're having feelings about what the patient is saying to us, we're, we're trying yeah. to mentalize our affectivity. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think, um, I mean, John Allen, who is um, a psychologist who had, was at Menninger's for a long time, uh, likes to talk about mentalization as plain old therapy, right? So it's not something that is, in, you know, exactly news that therapists engage in a process of trying to mentalize the experience that patients are telling them, right? Um I don't entirely agree with that because I think that um, mentalization um, uh, does require uh, someone to um, be willing to have access to how their own history is influencing their mental states, right? So that's partially how the idea of mentalized affectivity is different from emotion regulation in which you're just responding almost in an online way to someone else, right? Mentalized affectivity means that you're able to understand how your personal history or your um, autobiographical memory is going to have an impact on how you respond. Hmm. Okay, so as I'm continuing to sort of struggle with the the line between psychoanalysis and mentalization. I'm yeah. thinking, let's say um, somebody who's been, all their training has been in mentalization theory. They've read all the books on mentalization, including yours. Um, yeah. it, but they've never read psychoanalysis or been trained at a psychoanalytic institute. Right. Could they pretty much do the same work though? I mean, as a psychoanalyst? Uh, I would say yes and no. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, mentalization theory has been put forth in the form of an evidence-based uh, treatment approach by uh, Peter Fonicky called MBT, Mentalized Based uh, mm-hmm. Therapy. And that is that is different uh, as a treatment approach uh, than psychoanalysis. It's uh, time-limited, um, it involves both individual and uh, group work, um, and uh, I think it uh, has demonstrated success, especially with uh, patients who have a severe personality disorder. So that's appropriate for um, uh, a different uh, kind of patient than one who is likely to uh, come to see you in, in private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, I would recognize that um, mentalized-based mental, mentalized uh, therapy um, 
really is a different animal than uh, psychoanalysis. Um, and uh, the qualification I would make, though, is that, and this is something I do try to address in the book, um, that uh, therapists and psychodynamic therapists and other kinds of therapists as well uh, can adopt mentalizing strategies mm-hmm. um, rather than uh, just uh, seeking to adhere to um, an evidence-based uh, kind of approach. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, the other, the other point, since you sort of uh, brought up, you know, what, what, a, what someone would be like as a therapist just being trained in mentalization, you know, it's very important to appreciate uh, how mentalization, uh, I think, is a part of the history of psychoanalysis and grows out it has a large debt uh, to Bionian uh, ideas. Beyond was one of the uh, first uh, psychoanalysts to really focus on the idea of thinking, um, and especially how some people really, you know, uh, take flight from uh, being able to uh, engage in uh, thinking. So uh-huh. uh, both Beyond, Winnicott. Um, that kind of uh, object relations uh, context has been very formative on ideas that uh-huh. are, are part of mentalization. Uh-huh. Yeah, and let's get back to that because you have a chapter on contemporary psychoanalysis and, mm-hmm. and, and mentalization. But, you know, I looked, um, as I was thinking about some of these questions, <clears throat> I looked in the index of your book to see if the word transference was in the index, and it's not. <laughs> But uh-huh. that's surprising. Uh, I think I do address uh, transference. And uh, yeah, that's, again, um, in a very time-limited therapy, um, that is uh, not going to be the same phenomena as one in which, um, you know, transference takes time uh, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, emerge. Um, but, you know, MBT therapists certainly welcome patients to uh, put into thought their reactions uh, to uh, the therapist. And, you know, the other uh, form of uh, evidence-based psychodynamic thinking is transference-focused uh, therapy uh, by uh, Otto Kernberg and uh, his group. And that uh, certainly uh, makes transference very central uh, to uh, the process. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I, I was sitting here waiting for you I, to come online. I was looking at my bookshelf straight ahead of me, and I, I was looking at Severe Personality Disorders by Kernberg and thinking, <laughs> I should pull that off and see what that's all about. It's been a long time. But, um, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So let's see. One of the interesting things you do in your book is you bring in some personal sort of memoirs of a number of different people like Sarah Silverman and Ingemar Bergman. What was your strategy with that? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, it has to do with, I think, some ambivalence about uh, uh, talking too much about uh, my patients. So it's some, you know, um, mm. urge to respect uh, confidentiality. I, I do have a number of uh, clinical vignettes and try my best to disguise uh, the identity of the patients. But um, I think uh, the motivation in uh, turning to some of these uh, memoirs um, 
by Sarah Silverman, uh, Tracy Smith, um, Igmar Bergman, and Oliver Sacks, uh, was that I thought it would be fruitful to be able to look at how emotions are un- understood in light of autobiographical memory and narrative. Um, and so choosing kind of complex, highly creative individuals um, uh, became a sort of uh, a focus uh, of mine. Uh, I got especially interested, and there's uh, almost an entire chapter is about um, the two autobiographies that Oliver Sacks uh, wrote, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of fascinating uh, to look at because they're, they're radically different. Um, and Oliver Sacks, as you might know, uh, was in psychoanalysis for, I think, 45 years uh, with the same uh, analyst. Um, and uh, it certainly seems that uh, the something about his experience of being in analysis for that long um, unleashed this amazing and extraordinary uh, creativity in which, you know, he invented a genre of uh, writing um, and really, um, you know, found his way. Um, And uh, that's a stark contrast to his description of uh, his early life. Hmm. Yeah. You, that's another one of his books is is another one on my Amazon wish list that I've, I've got to get to that someday. But it's interesting yeah. about forty five years. I had no idea. I wonder if he makes any case that it was the psychoanalysis that made the difference. Because some people would say, after forty five yeah. years, <laughs> things are going to change and develop. Um, right. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough question, right? I mean, um, you know, in some ways you could say a measure of a, su- a successful analysis is that it ends. I mean, that, uh, you know, termination is faced up to both by the patient and, and the analyst. In another way, um, you know, where's that idea coming from? Um, if this is a crucial relationship in someone's life mm-hmm. and if someone continues to benefit from it, mm-hmm. um uh, yeah. You know, um, uh, I'm not sure that I uh, kind of would agree that, yeah. um, you know, it must come to a conclusion. So, um, you know, Sachs was someone who um, I think came out of his early life experiences. Uh, he was sent out of London because of the bombing and uh, was bullied um, and also uh, was really sort of rejected uh, by his mother when uh, he it came out that he was gay. And the story was that he divulged that to his father and told his father not to tell his mother. The father told the mother, and the mother uh, says something like, you know, she wishes he wasn't born. Um, but what's, what's really amazing about uh, Sachs is that Uh, You know, he comes to terms with ways in which his mother was and remains an important person uh, in uh, his life, but also sees how that was incredibly uh, damaging uh, to him. Okay. Well, you've just helped me solve the problem of what to add to my summer reading list because I, I keep telling myself <laughs> I've got to stop just reading psychoanalysis. I'm, I'm, I'm really want something more. Um, yeah. So that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, you have a chapter near the end about contemporary psychoanalysis uh, and you, what do you do in that chapter? 
Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, I think that's my effort to not just describe mentalization and to tout mentalization as, uh, you know, a new treatment approach, but to uh, acknowledge uh, its roots and its connections to other psychoanalytic uh, sources. Um, I guess the way I see mentalization theory is that it sort of shares a perspective um, with some relational uh, thinking, uh, some contemporary um, Bionian thinking, some uh, elements of field theory in seeing uh, the process as being collaborative um, and that it's less about content, in fact, than it is about uh, process. Um, so, um, I think that especially, uh, you hear it, uh, said that, um, you know, psychoanalysis is really about the relationship, um, that exists between the patient and the analyst and that, you know, research has supported the idea that it's the quality of the research that uh, the quality of the uh, relationship that is uh, most uh, critical. Um, And I guess in my book, I wanted to sort of take that point of view and to try to say a little more. Um, And the idea that I end up uh, centering on is uh, truthfulness. Um, So uh, I... I'm sort of wary of the idea of imagining that, you know, at the end of an analysis, it means that the patient has some absolute truth about him or herself, especially, you know, that's sort of transparent or stable. Um, But that um, part of what ought to happen uh, is that one is committed to aspiring to seek the truth. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, in my preface, sort of acknowledge uh, post the election of Trump, uh, which has become uh, certainly more true and more dangerous uh, that, uh, you know, we see a lot of disregard uh, for the truth uh, in our everyday lives. Yeah, I have to say, I. I really like that preface. When I picked, when I first was opening the book, I was thinking, well, I'm not sure this is going to be that much about psychoanalysis. But in any case, you had me um, hooked in, with the preface. I really appreciate. I see. The, well, the publisher was a little wary because, you know, it's true that uh, it can become dated when you're responding at a certain moment in time. But somehow I just felt that I couldn't fail to acknowledge the massive uh, change that uh, has uh, occurred with the election of Trump. Yeah, well, I hope it is dated someday and in one sense. But, um, I liked just the passion and the sort of fierceness of And I thought, oh, this is somebody who's not afraid to, you know, like lay out his cards on the table. So. Um, yeah, well, I hope that's where, you know, some emotional expressiveness, right, not just uh-huh. sort of controlling and containing the emotions is uh, revealed. Uh-huh. So you mentioned the quality of the relationship, and I think you said something about the scientific ways of sort of measuring mm-hmm. that. So you ran a clinical psychology program for many years at City University of New York. Did how did you, was it a, a psychoanalytic clinical psychology program or, and, yeah. and mm-hmm. did you have any tr- trouble with your, 
your colleagues, uh, you know, bringing psychoanalysis into clinical psychology, which some people would say they yeah too right. Uh, well, no, I had the luxury of mostly having uh, and still do have uh, lots of colleagues who um, are um, psychoanalytic. Um, uh, and uh, also colleagues who, if they're not, have been exposed to appreciate the value of uh, that perspective. Uh, it's certainly not true in the larger world of uh, clinical psychology. Uh, when I was the director, I actually spent a year uh, trying to press the APA to reveal information about um, the way in which the various programs uh, identify themselves. Um, and the chosen identity that my program had was as a scholar practitioner uh, program. And I can say a little more about what that means. Um, but there were really five of those programs out of 172 uh, across the country. Um, so the predominant paradigm uh, is a scientist practitioner one uh, where one will receive training uh, to become uh, um, comfortable with uh, doing research, um, but at the same time to value uh, the process of being trained as a clinician. Um, the newer model uh, that is now uh, being embraced uh, within clinical psychology is the clinical scientist model. Um, and there the idea is that um, any clinical training should be based upon research findings. Um, and what I think is uh, problematic about that is that, uh, you know, the quality of the research is not yet good enough to do that. Um, you know, uh, in the program that I teach in, uh, the centerpiece of the experience for students uh, is clinical work. Um, and we, you know, teach students that clinical work is not easy um, and that it's, you know, it takes a long time to uh, be able to do it uh, well. And so um, if, if under this clinical scientist model, the, the training and education is supposed to be centered on, you didn't say the word evidence-based treatments, but right. mm -hmm. then, then do you include, would you say that, we need to do more research as psychoanalysts uh -huh. to, to make the case? Uh, uh, yeah, although, you know, I, again, I kind of have a, a complicated perspective on that point. Um, on the one hand, uh, it's true. I think that in order to survive, um, people who are invested in the psychoanalytic uh, paradigm uh, need to try to do research. Um, and research is the path in which uh, your voice can be heard. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's a question of how you understand the meaning and value of uh, research um, and whether you see, um, you know, science as the only voice uh, that counts. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's where my perspective is broader in appreciating different kinds of um, methodological uh, approaches. You mentioned critical uh, psychology, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which are really valuable as a part of a clinical education. 
Um, you know, we've always had uh, students in my program who uh, have been English majors. Um, you know, why would being an English major be a good background for a clinical psychologist? Well, you know, if you're someone who has been uh, trained to pay close attention to narrative um, and to understanding uh, complexity when it comes to character, uh, that's a very appropriate uh, background for someone uh, who is becoming a clinical psychologist. So I value, I mean, the, the, in the conclusion or the, uh, of, or the epilogue of my book, uh, I um, have one uh, piece of it that's titled Science, But Not Just Science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's experimental science, sort of what typically mm-hmm. we think of in sort of the Western world as that's science. But I guess there's yeah. other ways of thinking about science in a, that come from more of a humanities sort of basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're the editor of, um, I guess... Oh, a book series, Psychoanalysis yes. and Psychological right. Science. Yeah. In fact, let me I'll make a correction because I was the editor of Psychoanalytic Psychology, the uh, oh. official journal of Division 39 of the APA uh-huh. uh, for 10 years. But I stepped down uh, as of January 1st, and now uh, Chris Christian is the current uh, editor. Okay. Um, but there's a book series that Guilford publications is doing called psychoanalysis um, uh, and psychological science uh, that uh, I am editing. And um, we have uh, two other books that are going to be coming out uh, in that series. One is from the TFP group associated with Otto Kernberg Mm -hmm. um, uh, that focuses on treatment approaches for narcissistic patients. Um, so it's, you know, based upon uh, an evidence-based model, but it's directed to uh, everyday clinicians to be able to uh, adopt some of those uh, strategies in their work with narcissistic patients. Um, and then the other uh, book that is coming out is by uh, Joel Weinberger uh, and a colleague, Valentina Stolveda. Um, and uh, that uh, book focuses on comparing uh, ideas of the unconscious that come from psychoanalysis, but social psychology and uh, neuroscience as well. Whoa. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, my uh, kind of preferred uh, perspective uh, is that psychoanalysis needs to open itself up to influence from uh, other uh, perspectives, and that that is a kind of necessary thing uh, going forward. Yeah. So many people argue for why psychoanalysis needs to maintain a strong interdisciplinary sort of stance. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But I think often when people say that, they're talking about the disciplines they're talking about are maybe anthropology or linguistics or maybe sociology, but why not yeah. other sciences uh, as well. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I think the, the point is that there is a history of psychoanalytic institutes uh, being uh, more concerned with uh, kind of perpetuating uh, a point of view that is uninfluenced by uh, outside 
thinking. Um, and I think that actually has been uh, harmful uh, to the development of psychoanalysis. Uh -huh. Well, you mentioned two books that are coming out in this series. Um, the first one, I, I'd be really interested. I'll, I'll look for that one because I, I've read some of Kernberg's, what is it, TF, Transference Focus, TF Ther therapy. Yeah, uh -huh. cancer focus therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about therapy. what they're adding. They've have some sort of even like manuals of how to do transference focused therapy, but I'm that's right. Curious about what what new they're bringing to this new. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the most interesting findings of the research about TFP is that what changes when patients get better is that they become better mentalizers. Mm -hmm. Well, and then what about you? Any new books you're working on? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a couple of different ideas okay. uh, in mind. Uh, you know, part of it is just um, to continue to do research and to learn about mentalized affectivity that I want to sort of exemplify the idea of uh, that, uh, you know, this is a, a, a beginning stage and that, um, you know, uh, the value of research is that it's fallible and that uh, it has to evolve over time. So that's uh, one of uh, the things that I will be mm -hmm. uh, focusing on. Well, great. I think that's it. So thank you so much, Elliot, for sharing us uh, this time with us to tell us about your book. Okay, it's been a pleasure talking, Philip. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Elliot Jurist about his book, Minding Emotions, Cultivating Mentalization and Psychotherapy, um, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis um, channel. Uh, check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.